2: officers by nature of their job deal with some of the worst things that people have to deal with in society tragedy death violence whether they're involved with it themselves or just witness it as part of their job and it compounds after time in my experience officers at varying degrees are, are or are not able to handle that in a healthy way and sometimes that results in things that can have serious effect on their mental health as a police officer working in those types of environments I personally know officers who have, have it's actually been debilitating the effects of post-traumatic stress on their lives. You'll find pretty much the same thing in the profession and in other parts of the world. A very frequent theme within law enforcement is broken families.
3: Police officers are probably one of the highest professions out there for getting divorces. Because we're terrible at commu- like we're great communicators with the public and the victims and dealing with criminals. But going home and expressing our feelings to our significant other is somewhat hot.
2: Some of the, I call them survival mechanisms that officers often do, is a little bit of emotional detachment. They learn to not get involved emotionally with the things they have to deal with on a daily basis. And oftentimes that emotional detachment bleeds over to their personal lives. It affects their personal relationships.
3: You don't want to expose them to the trauma that you might have been exposed to during the day. In London, yeah, yeah it's a regular occurrence of violent crime. It's a regular occurrence of seeing victims. You don't want them to see you. You don't want to tell them of how bad it is out there. You want to be that detector.
2: I, I personally know officers who have committed suicide, and you could attribute it a lot to their professions.
3: Their coping mechanism hasn't been good. At the same time, they've got marital issues going on, which they all feel everything's coming down on top, and that's all we do as police officers. We hide those emotions. Some officers are just really good at hide everything. You know, nothing even phases them but they could be some of the biggest problems later down the line. They just hide it better. We were police officers because we like people. We love people. We want to help people. But, you know, like we are just the same as everybody else. You know, we are human, and we are going to suffer the same emotional effects that they do.
2: It's a problem that has, I won't say, been ignored, but it certainly could be done much better for first responders. Most agencies have few or no resources. When it comes to officer wellness, and officer wellness includes mental wellness as well as physical wellness. There can be better systems in place to help officers to deal with that, to be able to manage that type of stress and maintain the healthy relationship that they should be able to maintain with their family and and lives outside of police work. There's a big difference between executives talking about it and doing something about it. The officers need those resources, and they need those resources to be easily accessible, and they need to know that it's okay. It's okay to use those resources. It's on all of us to help change that culture.
4: Hi, welcome to EM Weekly, and this is your host, Todd DeVospeaky. speaking this week we are talking about PTSD and also post-traumatic stress without the disorder I suppose and how first responders and emergency managers are suffering from it. I just read an article this week and how first responders are dying from their own hand more than they do on the job. We have lost more military members to suicide than we have in combat. I mention veterans in this story because First responders and emergency managers, we have an overwhelming number of uh, veterans that work in the space. Today, I'm gonna to have the producers of the movie called Light in the Dark, Brian Ross and Kimberly Resch. Uh, when I was going through uh, peer counseling um, after the Salon Maritash shooting, you know, we're in the peer groups and, and uh, Ron LaVelle, Sergeant of the time. Uh, he, he says that the stresses that we feel after or even during um, responses are stuff that we carry with us over time. So one call probably you know, isn't going to break us, but it's the multiple calls over time. That's one of the reasons why when you respond to something, your experience is, even though you might be standing right next to somebody who's seeing the same thing that you are, is going to be completely different and he talks about this theory of the pebble in the backpack and what that is is that every time that you respond to a call you take a little bit of that call away from you and you put that pebble into the backpack and at some point that backpack is going to be so heavy for all the pebbles that you put into it and so our job as co-workers as fellow uh, human beings is to take and keep an eye on each other. And when we start seeing the heavy load of that backpack on that individual, we should reach out to them and see if we can lighten that load up a little bit. Talk to them. Maybe remove a pebble or two. And hold on to it with them for a little while. I just want you guys to know that even those I haven't met yet, you're in the field of emergency management, you're in the field of... uh, He's a first responder, military guy, gal. So, number of guys is generic for me. I care for you all. I truly do. And if you guys are feeling the stress of life, feel the stress of the job, find me, reach out to me. If you need to vent or talk. And if not me, find somebody that's within your repair group that you trust. Don't hold on to it. Let it out. I'm telling you it does make you feel better.
1: Now, what are the anger? Well, welcome to Ian Weekly. Uh, thank you. We're glad to be here.
4: We're talking about PTSD, post traumatic stress, um, and the first responder. And I'll, I'll tell you, some of you guys out there that listen know my role but uh, so I, I started out and I was in the military and I also ran rescue ambulance in some of the toughest parts of Los Angeles and uh, I responded to some significant events and, and one of the um, and I, I respond to the largest uh, mass killing in Orange County's history so I, I understand the stresses that the system puts on the on the body and on the mind and when I was approached to have you guys come on the show to talk about your film that you have coming out light in the darkness and to talk about ptsd i thought this would be a really good fit for emergency managers out there um and right now in, in california we have some large fires burning and to understand the stress that they're going through and, and what that means and so thank you for coming on the show thank you thanks for having us why this topic for you guys
1: well normally i i'll take these first questions but i think this is a question for kimberly
0: uh, so I, I personally have, uh, post-traumatic stress, uh, from an event that happened when I was much younger and it didn't really surface, um, problematically until I was 16. And then again, when I was 45 going through basically a layoff, um, of a, of a very, um, of, I guess this is figure income, And then all of the things like when you have downtime, uh, things come to, I guess, fruition of, of what you have to work through and, and, um, and so I had some time and to decide what I wanted to do, I guess, when I grew up. And instead of being in corporate, I had uh, decided to become an entrepreneur, which I'd actually been for 20 years, kind of on the side, helping educate um, CEOs and C-suite with uh, emotional intelligence training. But it was pretty much on the, on the DL. I didn't do it. It wasn't like my primary. I had been doing it since 1999. It was really important for any of the corporate um, gigs that I actually did have. Um, to be able to articulate emotional intelligence conversations within a group or with a C-suite or within a client a client group, I uh, just to get a desired result. That's like corporate speak, essentially, right? And then I was no longer in the corporate world, and um, I, look, I guess looked around at my life and said, you know, I mean, I've been pretty successful in my life. However, am I really doing something that is filling me with the most? A lot of purpose if we're only here on this life for, you know, an average of, what, like 90, 85 or 90 years, you know, will I have gone down in history doing what I wanted to do? And the answer was ultimately, even though I was helping a lot of people, the answer was ultimately no, because when I was asking other people, they felt the same. So within that change, I decided to um, focus on something that mattered, which is primarily, you know, mental health. Brian can share quite a few facts about uh, mental health in general, along with EMS, we some of the things that you guys encounter. Um, and there's a significant mental, hy- excuse me, mental health crisis that has happened over the last 50 years. And um, we've talked to departments all over the country and frankly all over the world. And you'll be able to see some of those videos, um, films on countrypresenting.org where we've actually talked to LEOs and about PTSD. And there's a really significant need for opening up a conversation, not only for the people that they're working with, on the street basically for mental health and learning how to have new communication skills. And it's essentially it's mental health first aid, not only for themselves, but also um, for the people that are on the street. And I just think that at the end of the day, mental health is, is really everything. I mean, body, mind, spirit, but your mental health, if you can't get up in the morning and be focused, it makes it really difficult for the rest of your life. And I would say that that was probably my motivation was, helping
4: people get mentally healthy, including myself. So as a kid growing up and getting into uh, first response stuff and when I was 18 in 1988, a long time ago, um, we kind of came from that school of the older guys at least, uh, of of suck it up. Like, okay, you're going to see things, it's going to suck, but man it up and and do what you got to do with it and, and, uh, you know, Bury those emotions deep down because no one wants to see you cry on the scene, and you have to be there for everybody else. And going in the military kind of came from that same same level, right? You know, you're gonna see crap, you're gonna go through stuff, just just suck it up. And uh, now we're looking at things from a different perspective. Um, one of my friends who I served with uh, runs a uh, the uh, here on the West Coast the PTSD Foundation. Um, of America, uh, he runs the uh, a group here in Southern California, and uh, he, you know he, we talk about it. And, and him and I, we we go back. We were both like E, nothing's together, going through school, and he talks about some of the issues. Now we still have service members twenty. It's like the average, I think it's gone down a little bit, but it's twenty two every day is sort of the the mantra. Um, we have uh, law enforcement officers that are killing ourselves. We have firefighters that are killing themselves uh, at, at high rates. What can we do as emergency managers, as leaders in, in this field? What can we do to help reduce the stigma of coming for help? Uh, and I think that's where we have to start. What, what can
1: we do to reduce that stigma of, of
4: reaching out? Well, from our
1: perspective, um, we have been really fortunate to be able to meet and talk and actually interview some really key um, professionals around the United States and some of these organizations, such as the NTOA, National Tactical Officers, um, you know they they're they're looked at as one of the most elite, if not the elite, uh, organization uh, overseeing educating. You know, first responders. And what we what we know, just from speaking with them and being part of, you know, some of their programs, is that there is still a stigma, although it is changing. Whether in, whether we're talking about fire or police or EMS, it's changing. But we just did a, a really powerful short video with um, with a gentleman from EAS. EA, Yes. Excuse me. He was on one of the most the busiest helicopter for years, putting in just amazing hours. And um, some of the statistics are are absolutely mind-blowing. Um, you know, I'll, I'll I'll state a couple, but one of the statistics is that more firefighters are are losing their lives by their own hand, with suicide than they are in the line of duty. Same sort of thing has happened with police officers. And the stigma, um, you know, the, the media out there has not done, um, I don't believe, their part to support first responders. Um, they've painted with a very wide, broad brush. Um, there's there's always going to be bad apples in every, everything. But we know firsthand, as filmmakers of conscious content, that there is some amazing people, men and women, serving. So it's about education. It's about bringing awareness. It's about beginning to have a conversation um, at the top levels. So these officers, they feel okay about talking about it. They can't compartmentalize it. They're not able to talk about it at home. So it's not just the officers that are affected by this. It's their families and their friends. So we need to have a conversation. We need to man up and, as they say, (laughs) have that conversation. These debriefs need to have um, more authentic openness to where people can talk about what they just saw and how do you deal with that. So it starts with education. It starts with awareness. So after the
4: Salon Marital shooting in Seal Beach, we actually had on scene, uh, crisis counselors, and before we left the command post, we had to have a quick debrief with them to see how we were just doing at that point, and then the we group. had a we had a mandatory um, group debriefing uh, with everybody that showed up, and I, I wasn't really I I always, you know, I'm like okay this is gonna be a waste of time, and uh, um, so I went because I had to go, and and actually I'm glad I went right, I mean because you know hearing yeah. everybody else's story it kind of actually. Kind of uh, brought it home a little bit, and then, and then we had our one-on-one counseling that we that they had us go through um, uh, after that. Um, so I mean, I think we're doing, we're trying to do a, a good job. I think we there's a lot of room, but I think the problem with guys and gals coming forward when they're having, especially in law enforcement, when when they're having um, issues, is I think they're afraid of losing their their job because especially, you know, you have police officers with guns and, and so I think they're afraid that they're going to lose that. What can we do yeah. to, what can we do to make that, uh, n- I mean, maybe we can't, but what, What? What? during your research, during your filming, what did you find out about people that were in law enforcement? Were they more, were they less forward coming because they're afraid of losing their job or is that just, just a, uh, old wives tale? When well, we were, <coughs> excuse
0: me, when we were at a at a, a, a national convention in Orlando just recently, um, I managed to ask between fifty and sixty officers from all different departments. Um, what we do know is that most departments, eighty percent of all departments, like let's say police or even sheriff's departments, have less than um, ten people in their department, and another small portion have uh, less than fifty. And there's a excuse me, a large portion. Let me let me back up. So most of the 18,000 agencies across the United States have less than 10 officers that are on duty, and they definitely don't have any kind of mental health training or an officer or mental health uh, program that's put in place to help them when they've gone through a trauma themselves, either by witnessing it um, personally or through their, their job um, or from a distance uh, from one of their fellow officers. So um, most of the the departments that are are very very large, like the Atlanta um, Sheriff's Department, we've spoken to some of the people there, and they even and even LA LA has a pretty LAPD. They have a pretty good, and their Sheriff's Department has a pretty good program, but it takes quite a bit of of funding. And most departments, the first thing that they'll cut is any kind of extracurricular funding, as you probably know. And so any of that would be. A crisis intervention counseling, anything like that. And so what we're finding is that, um, there's so much dysfunction happening, especially in the smaller departments that nobody really is going to talk about it. And, and they are definitely fearful, at least the, the gentleman and the, the very few ladies that I spoke to, um, very, very few ladies, unfortunately. Um, they don't, they definitely don't talk about it. And the second that they feel like, they should talk about it and they go and talk to their superior, whoever that may be. Um, They feel like they're going to be judged for the most part. And the other thing is, is they feel like they're going to be asked for their gun and their badge. And that is, I mean, let's face it. Police officers, law enforcement, you guys aren't millionaires. You're not making a lot of money doing it. You're doing it for the most part, at least from what I'm understanding, you're doing it because it's it's literally a soul, something that you're born with, like the, the need to serve and protect is, It's quite literally like in your DNA, especially the older generations. And what I was finding was that this was their sole income and this is all that they knew how to do. And they felt like they were less because they were feeling all of these things because nobody was talking about it. And and it it can really mess with the person's psyche in general. I mean, you see things and it turns into CPTSD, which is like compound or complex post-traumatic stress. And then it will turn into a disorder or a long term, if it goes over 30, 30 days, which is what our medical board says. And there's a lot of people suffering with that. So training, especially crisis intervention training, law enforcement response interaction, training, um, wellness and resiliency training, mental health first aid, you know, ex- excessive uh, programming and communication skills, response alternatives to suicidal subjects, all of those things are all programs that are necessary to be taught so that way everyone in law enforcement, at least without working with the public, have a toolbox that they can go, okay, this is this is what I just saw. Now I know what to do with it. And there are therapies out there that really can work on the job, but most programs just simply can't fund them.
1: We did uh, get a, receive a phone call recently from one uh, large um organization or actually um I, I don't know if i can name who they are but they they received a grant and they had reached out to us to see if we could help them with that um, as it relates to you know how to implement a program like that so there are funds out there available but you have to know how to you know how to find them and uh, not all police agencies have grant writers but there, there are funds available and um, you know, we're wondering, though, if there's enough education and if there's enough conversation if, if groups of agencies can come together under maybe a larger organization like the um, the National Sheriff's Association or like the NTOA. There's many others out there, but to get the training that's out there. We're also aware of, you know, some other programs where very unique ways of raising funds. Um, there's a Organization. I guess we could name uh, Angel Armor and uh, uh, Shield 616. Uh, Shield 616 is a really unique situation where the individual, he's an officer, he decided, you know, he was involved in, um, in gun battles and lost some good, really good friends and uh, was able to um, tie in with another organization that created these uh, wearable vests that, that are Rifle, uh, proof, um, and was able to go out into the community and sponsor these, uh, officers individually by individual family And it, it's just been a beautiful, um, thing to watch. And he's had a ton of success with, with this nonprofit, um, shield 616, uh, in, in able to get these agencies the type of equipment they need and also really re, reworking that communication and relationship between the community and the officers, it really has turned out to be a special thing. I wonder if that can't be emulated in different ways for training and things like that, because the conversation is out there. That's what our film light in the darkness is about is not just the veterans that have risked their lives overseas for, for us as Americans, but also our police officers or first responders, but every day people like ourselves, that have dealt with that. So I think when the conversation is open and and it's being talked about, there's different ways for these things to get funded. Let's take a quick
4: break. And when we come back, I want to talk a little bit more about the film.
0: Seconds count during an emergency. That's why at Titan HST, we're always inventing new technology to help people stay safe and help people who can provide help, get connected with people who need help. At Titan HST, we've deployed mesh networking, allowing emergency communication, even when networks are down, augmented reality and real-time translation. We believe in the power of people to help each other stay safe and thrive.
2: He always returned his mother's phone call, you know. So when I, he's like, "I'm at work. I can't go over there." So I'm like, "I'll head over there," and I knew going over it wasn't going to be good. I had his daughter contact me. She's an adult now, and uh, and she was horrified, and. Um, sure she wishes that I did not tell her.
1: Take a break on that one.
4: I wouldn't have been able to tell that story a couple years ago, I don't think. Welcome back from that break. And I want, you know, thank you for the sponsors that are here. And without them, we can't do what we do. So please reach out to them. Let them know you heard them here on Ian Weekly and, uh, That way we can still bring great content like we have today. So Light in the Darkness, the film, how did you pick the subjects that you interviewed?
0: Well, for me, it was was from a personal story, and then it spawned into hearing the stories of others. And then once I realized it was literally an epidemic, we thought that uh, for sure our team uh, came together, and we thought for sure that other people need to hear not only the stories that are relatable, but also understand what PPS is what traumatic stress is, um, how, do, how does a person get it, educate them um, from a medical perspective as to what it is, and then an emotional and spiritual connection as to you know, how can you work through that. And um, the goal is that you know, it's really important that when you're put in a situation where you're you're, you're compromised that you find the strength to, you know, to, to push through it. And light in the darkness is like the glimmer of hope that either you find it within yourself or you find it in someone else, to try
4: to you know, pull through the things that make you suffer. So, today on the uh, on the news, they're talking about the uh, shelters that are opening up at, over one of the burn areas that's going on right now. And the newscaster asked one of the questions, is other mental health professionals at the shelters to help um, the victims, you know, the survivors of this fire um, out? And my first inclination is just me going, oh, really? Do we really need to have mental health professionals at a shelter? I mean, it, no one's hurt. You know, the fire's kind of scary, but for the most part, you know, and if you lose a house, it's just stuff. But then I started thinking about it and checking my own self at the door here and going, oh, but that's their entire life that they have there. And so maybe they do if they're feeling that stress. What is, how does that stress of this particular event manifest itself into PTSD uh, you know i know this is definitely stress but does this does it automatically i don't know if automatically does it manifest itself into PTSD if it's going on for a long time or can this one event actually create put somebody into the PTSD category
0: so neither of us are any medical healthcare doctors so we can't really speak about that specifically However, um, they're saying that if you have 10 people two all experiencing something, that two of those 10 people are going to experience some kind of experience with PTSD and PTSD happens when symptoms of the post-traumatic stress have exceeded 30 days. Our film really does address that and goes into it with uh, Dr. Warden. Um, but because we just, we're just not medical professionals regarding that and we're filmmakers, um, you know, we can just go off of what the statistics are, but Dr. Warden does address that in the film very specifically as an entire chapter of how a person would get PTSD, what does that look like, and how is it possible for it to turn into PTSD. And then also from a deeper medical perspective, we look at people's MRIs, and we can actually see that people that have combat our combat vets really have something similar happen to their brains as someone who is been in an abusive relationship or in a car accident or in something that was even mentally challenging, um, that there there are commonalities. Not not one brain is ever the same, of course, because we're all different matter. But at the end of the day, they were seeing that people that were in a physical battle or had seen some things were having similar effects as the people who were in abusive relationships or in car accidents.
4: I watched some of the clips of your film. And uh, they're pretty heavy. Did you have somebody there to help out, you know, bringing these conversations out, or was it just you and the camera?
0: So we have a team, and we have, we have, we have a team uh, that works with it. We did have Dr. Warden, who was with us, um, for part of the shoot. Um, but for the most part, the very, very first shoot that we had was in the middle of a park when it was freezing out. And I had just put a message out to some of the people I knew and just said, we're really thinking about possibly doing an awareness campaign for PTSD. Um, Do any of you want to tell your stories? And so they were pretty much vetted beforehand that said, you know, if you're comfortable, because we didn't want to create trigger content in general, like not only for themselves, but for someone else who's watching it. And they were in a space, I guess, mentally and emotionally where they felt like they could talk about their story and including Dr. King, Brian can talk more about.
1: Well, I mean, it's interesting, Dr. King's story. um, He's the Australian, if you saw some of the clips. And uh, folks can go to our YouTube channel and you can see a lot of the behind the scenes um, and and get a feel for it. You know, when we first put this together, there was some scenes that were even more heavy than what you saw, but we've done several focus groups um, and we had decided that especially with some religious organizations that were also involved with some of our focus groups, really the goal with all of our films is to get them out to most of humanity. So we didn't want to, we wanted to make it as real enough for people to feel it and be emotionally affected by it. Uh, And that's what makes people stand up and want to have change. We didn't want it so much so that, you know, it wouldn't be accepted within certain organizations and and places like schools. I think we've done a, a very good job at at that. We've, um, as a matter of fact, when I mentioned schools, one of these an organization, a national organization, Alexander Street uh, had had um, contacted us as we were finishing the film and reviewed it after we finished uh, some of our, uh, our final editing decided they would love to have it and what they do is distribute it within all the universities high schools and such so we we as you as you watched the film you probably saw some of the heavier parts but we felt like they needed to be in there uh dr king is a man of uh, john king who suffered sexual abuse by his parents at a very young age and that is something that just isn't Spoken about, we hear a lot about girls and, and women. We don't hear much about men, and, um, and we felt like that needed to be in the film. So, great question, though.
4: So, how do you guys plan on uh,
1: showing this? Well, um, Kimberly has been working her tail off uh, lately. Um, we we're going to do. Uh, limited distribution through theaters because the entire market has changed for film. Obviously, everything is digital now with Netflix and streaming, everything. No one's sitting down and watching TV at a specific time and not as many people go to the theaters. But in select communities, we felt it was very necessary for this film because it's become a tool. It's not an entertainment piece. It's a tool to, to spread awareness. Uh, and the, what we found is a lot of professionals are, are interested and attracted to it as a purpose to use it within their organizations to, to begin that conversation and to educate. So we're doing a, uh, we have a, we have a premiere in Green Bay, Wisconsin coming up in November 6th. And we've got four or 500 people coming, including the uh, mayor's office and quite a few heads of uh, health organizations, including the head of NAMI and the Veterans, uh, administration will be represented there as well. It is a, it's a fully sponsored, uh, red carpet, uh, event. So anyone who's, who would like to, uh, who's going to be in the area would like to go. It starts at 5 p.m. November 6th. You can go to our website, consciouscontent.org and you can register, uh, for your e-tickets to be sent out to you. Um, we're going to do one in Phoenix. We've got one planned for uh, Orlando, Colorado, Dallas. And, of course, we are, are going to put quite a bit of emphasis in to social media, to digital distribution, and obviously through the education um, departments of our major universities through Alexander Street. So we think we've got a fairly good start but we're always open. So if there's anyone out out there that uh, wants to uh, guide us in distribution, the goal with all of our films is to get them out to most of humanity.
0: And we're open to sponsorships for every city.
4: All right, Kit, I was just about to ask that question. I was going to say, if somebody wanted to sponsor a show or, or have it come to uh, their, say, school or organization, how could they uh, do that?
0: Yep, well, they, they can just reach out to me and every every situation is going to be con- is going to be considered individually. So this particular one that we're having in Green Bay is quite a large ordeal. Not a lot of I mean, you don't hear of a lot of film premieres having four or five hundred people in it, unless you're in LA. <laughs> and, um, and 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 the people that are attending are decision makers and people who can impact and help. You know, we have some churches being represented. We have the police, fire, um, sheriff, EMS is being is um, being represented. And, um, local health care, it will also be there. Counselors, therapists, you name it, are going to be there. We have people that are in programs where they're trying to get back on their feet just before they go the homeless, if you will, is a program called Circles. Um, they're bringing like 80 people to this event, um, because a lot of them suffer from mental health and knowing that one in five people in America have mental health or some type of mental illness regarding mental health, um, it was, they felt that the film was really informative and um, created a level of awareness to create a conversation. And the sponsor that we have is, is quite a large um, business in Wisconsin by itself. Um, it's KI, which is um, Krieger International. And they're a, a very large international furniture maker for like prisons and schools and libraries and business offices, very, very high end. And And they have a really great mental health program and do believe in mental health being one of the cornerstones of having happy employees. And they felt like they were a really good fit. Um, So Dick Rush, who's the chairman and CEO of it, um, has uh, taken care of the sponsorship for the Meyer Theater. And so a program like that might be a little bit more than like a smaller program at at a at another, a smaller theater or in a library or something like that. But there are quite a few businesses that are out there that you wouldn't really think would be a good fit, but really are reaching out, trying to see how they can get involved in the mental health conversation because it's really affecting them, their families, their employees, you know, local government, like it's everywhere. I mean, if one in five, I mean, there's somebody in the room that's going to have it. And so they just really want... Uh, to open up the conversation and be socially responsible, which I think is amazing. It's beautiful timing.
4: If you could uh, say one thing to all of the emergency managers in the entire world, what would that be?
1: One thing. I would say we wanted to um, give our appreciation out to them for dedicating uh, not only their time, uh, but their life. Um, we want to let them know that um, they are cared for, they are appreciated, um, and that if they're patient, that the conversation is being started, and that they do need to ask for help, and uh, that their lives matter uh, just as much as the lives that they're helping or to save every day. And um, what do you think?
0: Um, I I would say that I'm after interviewing so many of them. That they are far more empathetic than they let let out. They internalize a lot more than people see. And me personally, from having PTS, I see it in people's eyes. And when we can really start having an open conversation, that's when healing begins. So I would say that I guess it's good as time to running.
1: I think now it's a good time and I think we'll the, conversation. that conversation happens with, with these folks and and people in society. Uh, you know, the everyday people that, that you guys are taking care of, they hear those stories. That helps mend and heal those relationships that unfortunately the media has sort of um, done a, you know, they've done not the best job as it relates to telling the stories as it relates to our fine men and women that are protecting and serving. So yes, that conversation, having them open up and actually show that they're human, uh, that's where the connection happens and that's where the healing can happen.
4: And Thank you so much for, for being on the show today and thank you for the work that you're doing to bring light of the PTSD and PTS uh, issues in in this uh, country, and specifically uh, in the uh, police, fire, emergency management, uh, realm. Thanks for having us.
1: Thank you very much for having us, guys.